ask everybody to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, as we've been looking, just completed the first chapter of Romans last week, Paul ended his remarks about uh, all the evidences of how we've exchanged God's truth for a lie and his glory for idolatry, all the, the sort of the fallout from that as evidence in all kinds of sins, sexual sins and lying and greed and um, lust and, you know, racism and so on. There's just this whole long, awful list. And you sort of think that Paul is setting the Romans up. You almost wonder what's going through their minds. Are they thinking that, you know, yeah, of course, as Paul concludes in verse 32 at the end of chapter 1, he says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them, he kind of would imagine a religious response to be something like, well, I certainly don't approve of, of those things. I, in fact, just, I just wholeheartedly disapprove of those things, and that makes me a good person, right? And so you, you sort of would wonder, is Paul going to follow that train of thinking, sort of separating the, the bad people from the good people, and God bless you, Romans, you, you all behave so well, and you get a gold star today, and uh, good for you. Stoking, stoking the fires of their self, self-righteousness, basically. Um, is, is that what they should expect? How is uh, Paul going to take this, uh, this argument about the, the nature of how we've exchanged God's truth for a lie? Let's stand in honor of God's word, and I want to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, the, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and for how it instructs us in what's true and what's real and how it blows away the fog in our minds and our souls about how we view ourselves, how we view others, how we view you. 
Lord, would you bless us today with the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, generally, the character is that um, the caricature is that the, the religious people uh, see themselves as as good people. They see themselves as people that that are uh, that God's partial to, that God's favorably inclined toward, because religious people are being religious, and uh, they're going to church and they're. They're being good people, and they're following the rules, and so on. And, and where that leads the human heart is where it led the hearts of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, which is basically down this path of self-righteousness and comparing themselves to everybody else and thinking pretty highly of themselves and thinking very low of, of those around them. And so what Paul is doing is he's leveling the playing field. And he is just making absolutely sure that the church at Rome isn't basing their relationship with God on their religious observance, but basing their relationship with God on their faith in Jesus. That really is an expression of repentance, turning uh, from all kinds of sins uh, to Jesus, who, who saves us from our sins. Um, he first does this making a, um, talking about God's righteous judgment, and he, and he works in a contrast here. There, there was a, a threefold contrast that we were looking at last week. Paul employs the same literary tool here when it comes to God's righteousness. He talks about uh, God's judgment, uh, the judgment of God three times. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice um, unrighteousness. That's in verse 2. Verse 3, he says, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then the third time in verse 5 where Paul says, you're storing up wrath for yourself when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is sort of the the surprise for for Paul to his audience. He's not going to stoke the fires of their self-righteousness. He's not going to pat them on the head and say, you know, you've done good and God God likes you because you're good and and so on. And so he points to God's God's judgment and, and then he contrasts that with the judgment of man. Look at verses 1 and 3. You see it twice in verse 1 and once in verse 3. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Because you, the judge, and I, I, I like that. Paul is, Paul's highlighting this, this proclivity in us to just play the judge. You know, I, I have authority. I call the shots. I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And I, I also know what's right and what's wrong for everybody else. And we all do this. We play the judge, and we practice, but we practice the very same things that we're judging and that makes us guilty. And you go to verse 3, and you know, Paul further says, hey, do you suppose that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that, you know, you're, not, that you're going to escape God's accountability for that? All right, so there's the contrast. God's righteous judgment, our unrighteous judgment. And, and this, this shouldn't surprise us. You know, we all recognize that we, we struggle with being fair. We struggle with being impartial when it comes to justice. It shouldn't surprise us when we read in the paper, you know, like I saw in the newspaper uh, this past week, that Judge Judy's court is rigged. 
Shocker. You all get the globe, right? You get the paper? There's an, there's an odor in the court. There's an odor in the court that um, this, this expose, you know, by expert journalists, uh, have, has uncovered that Judge Judy's courtroom reality show is a shameful hoax. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, I just absolutely have no idea whether or not to even, is there, is there even a crumb of, of fact in this? I, I don't know. But I do think this is a helpful um, illustration of how we, we expect we expect fair and unbiased judgments from other people, but at the, at the same time, we, we know that it's impossible to get that from another human being. We, we, we esteem and have made an icon out of this image that's here on the, the left column here where it's the, uh, the Statue of Justice. And in her left hand, she, she's holding up the scales of justice. And in her right hand, uh, she is holding the, the sword of, of justice, um, basically where Paul talks in Romans 13 about how the government does not wield the sword for nothing. It's, they're, they're God's agents of vindication. But the other thing that's unique about the statue of justice is her blindfold. You, you've heard the expression, right, that justice is blind. Why does she need a blindfold? Why, why do we think that Proper justice is blind justice. Well, it's because we know that left to ourselves, we're going we're gonna to start judging the heart, we're going to start judging motives, we're going to start becoming biased, and we're going to play favorites. But if we're blind, then somehow that's going to help us only judge the facts and be objective rather than subjective in our judgments. And so um, we, we, in a sense, have this this desire for impartial justice, but we, we know when we're really not surprised, oh, sure, you know, Judge Judy, whatever. Um, we, we look at um, what happened, this conversation that we had with Lydia, our nine-year-old, who came home uh, from school one day this, this week and saying that when they were playing soccer at recess, one of, the, uh, one of her friends on the soccer field uh, accused Lydia of being a sore loser which is really tricky considering Lydia's team won. I don't know. Um, but her friend, who was accusing Lydia of being a sore loser, uh, I asked Lydia, well, were you, were you being you know, not nice? Were you being mean? Were you, were you being grumpy or no? And she's like, no. And I said, well, well, was your friend kind of being mean and grumpy? She said, yeah. And so her friend lost, and so she's calling Lydia a sore loser. Uh, but she's the sore loser. And so what we do is we, we view ourselves with a whole lot of grace. Uh, we're very soft in our judgments on ourselves, and we're hard on the judge, in our judgments on others. Uh, so as I even you know, expressed in the little greeting on the front of the bulletin, you know, I expect everybody to be extremely patient, tolerant, understanding of all the reasons why I'm running late all the time. I have important things to do. And I was doing important things before, you know, I showed up for this appointment. And so you should be sympathetic to that. But if somebody's late to meet me, you know, I'm not sympathetic. You know, I, I'm, I'm irritated. All of us are irritated. We're all the same way. We view ourselves uh, with, you know, rose-colored glasses, and we view everybody else as just guilty from the start. Uh, we do this when we're angry. 
I've got a reason. You know, you should understand why my anger is, is righteous. You, you should know that I was just provoked, right? But if, but if you're angry at me, how dare you? So this, this, this crazy thing going on in our hearts where we play the judge and inevitably we're going to be soft on ourselves and, and, and hard on others, which is why we're so grateful when Paul sort of comes to the end of, of what he's demonstrating to the church in Rome in verse 11. He says simply that God shows no partiality. So when you think about God's judgment, does, does God play favorites? No. Um, is God's judgment unfair in any way? No. Um, when, when you read about God's judgments, um, when we hear Abraham, for instance, say that, uh, or confess, will not the judge of all the earth do right, uh, you see that in the Bible, over and over and over again, God's standard for justice is the one that we aspire to. So he's perfect in his judgments. And based on that, we get to hear things like in Leviticus 19, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality uh, to the poor, or favoritism to the great. You know, don't play favorites on either end of the spectrum, but judge your neighbor fairly. And James 2 tells us that if you show favoritism, you sin. You're sinning if you do that and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. So we're, we're hard on others and soft on ourselves, but God's justice is fair. And it's so fair uh, and so righteous that he doesn't need a blindfold because God sees everything. So in your mind, you know, contrast that statue of, of Lady Justice with her blindfold with what's on the back of every single dollar bill in you know, our currency. You've got that pyramid there on the, on the right, and um, the pyramid is a little bit weird because the top of the pyramid's cut off, and there's this glowing triangle with a creepy eye, you know, in it. And it's this image of God's eye that sees everything, not just what's objective, but also into the, the heart of every human being. And that's why his judgments are right and good, because nothing is hidden from his sight. He's got all the facts. He knows all the details. There's nothing that escapes his eye, and that's why we trust him. His judgments are good and just. It's the standard of righteousness. He's not a hard judge, but neither is he a soft judge. He's a righteous judge. So when we get around the throne of heaven, where we spend the rest of eternity, we're going to join the heavenly host that we read about in Revelation 19, who are affirming forever, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. That's the anthem of heaven. There's not a creature in heaven, there's not a, a being in heaven that is ever kind of going, ah, God, I'm, I'm really just not sure about that. I'm not, maybe you kind of were a little hard there. Or maybe you were a little too soft. Nobody's writing about God's courtroom being rigged. God's justice is just. And Paul, his point in verse 5 is that compared to God's judgments, your judgments you know, leave you guilty, and it's because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is going to evoke really one of two responses. Either, oh no, how do I get a soft heart? Because I know that there's sin in me. I need a soft heart because I need to repent of my heart, an impenitent heart. Or the other response is, this is ridiculous. I'm a good person. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need this, you know. And Jesus knows that this is our, you know, binary reaction to what's going on when God's justice and his, his righteousness is revealed. That's why he told the parable in Luke 18 about the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so that parable begins, Luke gives us a commentary. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus has an audience in mind, and he tells this parable to those who look around at everybody else and think they're below me, and they look at themselves, and they, 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 they judge themselves very softly. And he's, Jesus says that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then Jesus switches gears and he says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is teaching us that humility trumps hypocrisy. That humility to illustrate it, trumps Trump. Let me put the parable in a modern day setting. Uh, two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, one of them, a publican, I mean a Republican, um, <laughs> prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, Mexicans, Syrians, or Clintons, or even like these other Republicans. All right, and now I'm going to quote him. I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. That's from an interview with CNN uh, last month in January. The, the interviewer was asking Donald Trump, look, you know, back in July, you made this um, sort of uh, attention-getting statement that you've never asked God for forgiveness. And, you know, let me follow up on that. That was several months ago. Is that still your position? And here's um, how Trump responded. He said, I like to be good. Uh, I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I, I, I try to do nothing that is bad, right? And, uh, and so that's Trump saying, no, I really don't need to ask for forgiveness. 
by the way, um, I appreciated Jack's prayer. I, I do hope you plan to vote on Tuesday. Let me tell you who to vote for. Um, I'm not going to name names. Um, from my vantage point, and this is just my, my personal um, position, uh, I think it's better to vote for the person you think would make the best president rather than the person who you think can win a primary. Um, vote your conscience and vote in a way that's congruent with the kingdom of God. Okay? So <laughs> back to Trump. Let's, uh, part of Trump's appeal his appeal, you know, and the reason why he's gathered such a, a large constituency is because people appreciate the fact that he, he tells it like it is, right? And he'll say the things that, that people are thinking. And, and on, on one hand, that can be a good thing, and we value plain speaking, and I think there's something to be said for that. And on the other hand, when what you're thinking is rude and wrong, you probably shouldn't speak it. Um, but here's the thing. When it comes to confession, when it comes to things like, I like to be good, I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness, he is speaking for all of us. Every single one of us in here has a lot in common with Donald Trump. We hate to ask for forgiveness. It, and I'm, I'm saying that factually. I know that's true of you, and I know it's true of me, because there's, there's arrogance, and there's pride, and there's the sinful nature in us. And it's so, uh, it, it, it's so um, you know, bad, basically, because what we feel like when we're going to say we're sorry, or when we're going to confess our fault, or we're going to humble ourselves, is we go through a little tiny death. And none of us likes dying. Death, death is bad. We don't want to die. But Jesus keeps telling us over and over again, take up your cross and follow me. And every time we confess our need, every time we humble ourselves and say we're wrong, or every time we admit our sin, every time we show and, and demonstrate, yeah, I know I fall short, we're, we're crucifying over and over again. A tiny little crucifixion goes on in your heart where, where you, that ego, that pride, that Pharisee in you and in me has to die. We don't like that. And that's why we hate confessing. That's why we hate, you know, saying, I know I don't measure up. But the Spirit gives us grace. And he shows us, look, if you don't humble yourself, the only option really is a hypocrite. Because God knows, God judges us rightly, and he knows our need. And I love how you see Jesus contrasting the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even like this tax collector. It would be really, really easy, right, for the tax collector to say, and God, I thank you that I'm not like this obnoxious Pharisee. You know, at least I'm real, We're keeping it honest. You know, I know I don't measure up, and I'm not a hypocrite. And that's just the other side of, of pride. That's still arrogance, and that's still unrighteousness. But he doesn't do that. The, the, the tax collector's simple focus is on God. He's not looking at anybody else. His center of attention is God. And he knows that he's got to be right with God. And it doesn't matter how he compares with anybody else. God's got to be the center. That's what repentance does, is it puts God at the center. It says, I'm sorry for my sin. It turns from that sin. It looks to Jesus to forgive our sins. And we then recognize, as Jesus describes it, that we have to be poor in spirit. I've got to, I've got to turn away from what I think are my, you know, my riches, but you know, it's really just that fool's gold that you find in Colorado. I'm not really rich. Um, 
Jack Miller, uh, a former, he's with the Lord, but he was a pastor, professor, and so on, um, writes that repentance prepares the way so that the Lord of glory can enter into the spirit and be adored as the new center of heavenly life. And that's great imagery, the new center of heavenly life. Before, such people were consumed by self-love, but once the spirit convicted them of sin and turned them to the cross, self-love was crowded out by love to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance does, is it recognizes, all right, I've been, I've been living my life with me at the center, uh, and, and this can be sort of in the, the, the meta-narrative way where somebody first comes to Jesus, like I did when I was 18 years old, and I just realized, you know what, I've been living a sham. And all of my life has you know, had Essen at the center, and I want Jesus to be at the center, and I'm turning to him. And then every day after that, since then, I've been going, you know what, I still have Essen at the center, and I still need to turn to Jesus and put him at the center. Um, Tim Keller compared our self-centeredness to like uh, all these different solar systems uh, where I'm the center of my own solar system, you're the center of your own solar system, and so on and so on, and we're all just kind of pretending like we're our own center, and what inevitably happens is you have these cosmic cataclysmic collisions as everybody's orbits are all out of whack. And the kingdom of God comes when individually we each repent of our self-centeredness, put Jesus at the center, and then corporately, as a congregation, as a church, we show you know, our community this is what harmony looks like, relational harmony in our congregation at home, in your families, with your roommates, you know, on your team, whatever the case may be. That's where people get to see Jesus at the center. So, so you know, Paul, in explaining all this, is showing us, look, you, you've got to turn from a hard and an unrepentant heart. You need a soft heart. You need to agree with the tax collector here. Woe to me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. All three of which, all three of those words are not words. Uh, It's funny because Paul says, are you presuming on God's kindness, forbearance, and patience as if uh, those are attributes exercised toward perfect people, law-keeping people? Because they're not. They're actually exercised toward people that, that require patience of God. They require his forbearance. Forbearance is a word that's like, um, like amnesty or a truce. It's a ceasefire. It's not the end of the war. The conflict's not over. And eventually that ceasefire is going to stop, and there's going to be some kind of, of reckoning. You know, there's going to be a, a winner and a loser. Uh, this picture of the day that God judges our hearts. So God's kindness as Paul says, is meant to lead us to repentance, not to arrogance. It's meant to lead us to humility rather than hypocrisy. And, and we see this really beautifully at the cross. Um, Jesus wasn't crucified alone, uh, as you, you probably know. But if you're just new to this whole thing, there were three guys crucified on that Good Friday. So Jesus and then two thieves. And there were two thieves, one on each side of him. And there they represent two categories of people. On the one hand, you've got the thief who was nasty and insulting 
to Jesus, you know, calls him the Christ in a mocking form. If you're the Christ, save yourself, you know, come down from the cross. And he was joining the crowd and mocking Jesus. But the thief on the other side of Jesus, as Luke tells us, comes to his senses, even on the cross, the 11th hour, the 11th hour and the 59th minute, he realizes my life has been a sham and I've had my, myself at the center. And he turns to the other thief on the other cross, on the other side of Jesus, and he says, are you insane? We're here because of what our sins deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus promises him, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So what's the difference between the two thieves? They're both lawbreakers. But one is unrepentant, and the other is repentant. The one has still got his self at the center, and the other one realizes Jesus has got to be my center. And that's a picture of humanity. There's two kinds of people in this world. Those who put people in two kinds of categories and those who don't. Anyway, uh, Mark Allen just told me that on the way up. Uh, there's two kinds of people in this world. There are those that know that they commit things that are wrong. We'll call them sins, use the religious word. There's people that know that they do wrong and really just pretend like that doesn't matter. And then there's other people that know that they do wrong and they repent of those things. Do you know what gets you into heaven? You know what gets anybody into heaven is not being a good person. Getting into heaven is not based on you or I uh, performing well and checking all of the boxes and handing God our scorecard and saying, see, I deserve to be in heaven. You know what gets you into heaven is repentance. Do you know what keeps you out of heaven? Unrepentance. There's not a single sin that can keep any of us out of heaven except the sin of saying, I don't need to repent. I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus. You know, Jesus would call that blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what keeps people out of heaven. You know what sends people to hell? It's unrepentance. Keeping themselves at the center. And hell for an eternity is a bunch of people that still have themselves at the center. But in heaven, Jesus is at the center. And everybody who has put Jesus at the center, you know, humblingly, uh, in an in a, um, imperfect way, fits and starts, you know, none of us is consistent in this uh, 100%. But it is our determined goal, Jesus is at the center, and I'm repenting every time he's not. And that's what gets you into heaven. So Jesus is calling us to have soft hearts. He's demonstrating this through Paul in his letter to the Romans. And you get to the place like in our confession of faith, we have um, these documents that our fathers and mothers in the faith went before us and they lived godly lives and then they said, hey, this is really how we think the Bible's teaching us. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 15, it says, as there is no sin so small that it but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So if if, if your default mode is a hard heart, you read that and you go, that is doubly offensive. Because my sins are not that big of a deal. How could they possibly deserve damnation? 
and how in the world can you let terrible, awful, big sinners off the hook? Because they've got a warped, false view of justice. But God's justice is perfect, it's impartial, and he holds every single one of us accountable, but through Jesus, every single one of us can be forgiven. Which kind of makes us scratch our head when you get to verse 6. It says, he will render to each one according to his works. I thought we just said it didn't matter what you do. I thought, it, I thought what got you into heaven was repentance, not, not your works. Well, that's true. But listen to what he goes on to say. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Do you see the two centers? Those who seek glory, honor, and immortality are not seeking those from themselves. My goodness, if you're seeking self-glory and self-honor and self-immortality, you're still in your brokenness and in that idolatry that was made us a mess to begin with. Now, this is the, these are those who are you know, heavenly-minded, seeking the things that are above, seeking God's glory, God's glory, God's honor, you know, the immortality of God, compared to those who are self-seeking. So I want you to know that God will judge us, he'll judge our actions, we're judged by our works, but we're justified by faith. We're justified through faith in Christ, turning from our sinful actions toward Jesus. God is going to hold us accountable for what we do. The spiritually sane person recognizes, I don't want to stand before God only on the basis of my works. I want to stand before God on the basis of Jesus what he did for me on the cross, and what he did all those years before the cross, keeping the law where I couldn't, giving me a record that I didn't deserve. So when Paul's bringing everything down, you know, and showing us that it's God's judgment that's just, and he doesn't show partiality, he's teaching us about God's mercy. He's teaching us about to, how to repent and look to Jesus, who gives us mercy, and that's why we've called this series, In View of God's Mercy. You fast forward to chapter 12, and Paul says, in view of God's mercy, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Two verses later, chapter 12, verse 3, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. We've got to turn from our hypocrisy and embrace the poverty of spirit that gives us humility and gives us a soft heart instead of a hard heart. We start looking at the people around us and we stop judging ourselves softly and judging them harshly. Stop looking at people and assuming that, well, if you're late, you probably have a good reason to be late. And I just want to enjoy being with you and I don't, I'm just glad you're here. If you're angry with somebody, you got to check your soul, you check your spirit, and you go, why am I angry? What am I, what am I demanding from this person? What do I have to have from them? And you, you, you subject yourself to God's judgment, and you extend mercy to others. And when it comes to forgiveness, do you have a hard time asking for forgiveness? I do. As we turn to Jesus, 
and ask him to give us humble hearts, soft hearts. He'll show us how to take up our crosses and die to ourself and offer forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. And then when somebody asks you for forgiveness, do you have a hard time forgiving them? Are you comparing yourself with them and thinking of yourself, I measure up, but you don't. God's mercy gives us grace so that we can show others grace. Let me pray. Jesus, would you help us as men and women and children to live lives in light of your mercy? Would you help us to see uh, your judgment as righteous and good and holy? Would you help us to compare ourselves only with you instead of other people? Please uh, do continue to forgive us for our pride and our hypocrisy. Give us humility and a gentleness of spirit, a poverty of spirit that glorifies you and shows the world what a heart that is following you looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.